I will try and interrupt you if you make it difficult to edit. Because I find that amusing. Now, you see how I timed that? Okay. Just she was taking a drink. You know, I do have controls and I can put you on mute. Can we find our way out of this uh, maze of rabbit trails? Embrace the rabbit trail. So, I'm sorry my that my interview has put your butt to sleep. <laughs> You're listening to the Lasers, Dragons, and Keyboards podcast, featuring interviews with your favorite speculative fiction authors. We'll be discussing their books, their fandoms, and their writing processes. So sit back and enjoy another exciting episode with your hosts, Aaron, Josh, and Liberty. Welcome back to Lasers, Dragons, and Keyboards. I'm Liberty Spidell, and this is episode 30 of the show. Today we have with us Patrick W. Carr, and he is, of course, our guest from episode 29. And uh, in 29, we talked about uh, his book, The Shock of Night. In this particular episode, we're, of course, talking about writing process. So, we get into it with character-driven fantasy and how he accomplishes this in his plotting process, Patrick and his disagreeable muse, and we also uh, spend some time talking about how he plans for a long-term series. If you're planning a long-term series or even anything like a trilogy or an an extra-long series or something of that nature, it it, some of his uh, thoughts are very helpful, and honestly, they kind of mirror my own being a serious writer as well. So Patrick also discusses having to redo your books from scratch under a deadline, which is probably something that most of us authors never, ever, ever want to have to do. But he's done it, and so he shares some of his experience there. And also how he carries around all of the books that he's been writing and all the characters in his head all of the time. We also talk about his methods for attacking writer's block and his techniques for making perfect fudge. That's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it is actually kind of interesting and I'm going to have to play around with making fudge come fall time and see if I can actually replicate some of Patrick's methods. Uh, we also t- talk about uh, traditional marketing advice from Patrick's agent, which is Steve Lobby. We also talk about some of the funny experiences Patrick has had as an author. So you'll want to hang on and listen because it is a very full episode, very funny episode, and there's a lot of good meaty stuff there as well. Uh, just a reminder, Aaron is going to be at Romemakers in Philadelphia this year. So if uh, you're around, be sure to say hi to him if you're over at the conference. Um, other than that, if uh, you're looking to be a guest on the show, please send us an email at lasersdragonskeyboards at gmail.com. We would be uh, very excited to entertain uh, your offer to come on the show if, if you're interested, or if you know an author who might be interested in coming on the show, uh, just drop us a line, put us in contact. That would be awesome. So, without further ado, here's our show. Welcome back to Lasers, Dragons, and Keyboards. We're here with Patrick Carr, and in this episode, we'll be discussing his writing process. Welcome Are you back. a fighter or a panther? 
Um, I would have to say that I am somewhere in between. Um, like a lot of writers, I actually started off and couldn't finish a book. I, uh, I would I would start a book, get three chapters in, write myself into a corner, give up, start a totally different book, get five chapters in, write myself into a corner, give up. And I did this half a dozen times. So to, fin to write my first book, I sat down and for six weeks I did nothing but outline, do character sketches, and basically storyboard scenes. And I, and I stuck to the outline and plowed through and wrote my first book, which was a totally forgettable effort that has never seen the light of day, really. And, but it kind of got me started. Um, when I wrote The Staff and the Sword, which was my first published work, uh, I actually took a different process. What I did instead of writing an outline was I wrote a character universe. Mm. And what I did was I spent an incredible amount of time defining each character, personality, looks, interests, history, uh, quirks, secrets. Um, and then what I did was I put the characters in motion with the basic bones of a plot and then I let the characters write the story nice. and that's and that's been the method that I've been using ever since which which is why and I'm very gratified which is why whenever I read a review where somebody says you know Carr writes character driven fantasy I'm always going like yes yes I got it right okay um, because <laughs> a lot of a lot of fantasy is is very very plot driven Mm -hmm. um, and the characters a lot of times yeah. come off a little bit two-dimensional, uh, like cardboard cutouts, and that's one of the things I wanted to avoid. I wanted, I wanted these like deep, like fully fleshed out three-dimensional characters so that they seemed almost as real as real people. So, so yeah, um, not exactly a plotter or a panster, more of a character. Nice. That is definitely the most unique answer we've had. Yeah. Well, you kind you kind of already answered this, but uh, uh, beyond what you've already said, what's your writing pro process look like? Uh, during the school year, I get up every morning at 5 a.m. Uh, I walk Mr. Fruffles very quickly so he can do his business. Uh, while I'm walking him, the coffee is brewing. And when I come back in, it's I start writing sometime before 5.30. And I write for at least an hour. Uh, I have a couple of cups of coffee and a, and a piece of dark chocolate. And uh, I crank out anywhere between, you know, 700 to 800 words a morning. And that's what my writing mm -hmm. process looks like. And somebody, somebody asked me and it says, you know, where do you meet your muse? And I was like, oh, man, I don't meet her anywhere. Uh, <laughs> I show up and I basically just keep showing up and some days she joins me and some days I just, I just log through seven or 800 words and you know, I'm not going to use the word I'm actually thinking of to describe my muse because she's like really disagreeable. 
But what I tell people is, is, you know, if you wait for your muse to show up, you're really not ever going to write anything because most of most of writing is without the muse, and you're just you're just slogging through it, and then mm-hmm. you go mm-hmm. back and you use what you can and you throw away what you can. Right. Yeah. Nice. Um. Well, we have a question that came up from our first part. Um. You mentioned that you you were laying the groundwork for three trilogies in the Dark Water Saga. Yes. When you're thinking long term, how does that affect your planning and your outline? And do you have a series outline? Uh, I do have a bare bones of a series outline because there are certain things that you you do have to plan out in front, or else the foreshadowing is not going to come together. Right. Um, but a lot of what I'm doing. Um, it, uh, that appears to be foreshadowing actually most of the time is just happy circumstance. Mm-hmm. Um, because by the time I'm done with a novel, I'm pretty much carrying the entire n- novel in my head. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking, mm-hmm. All right, here are, here are the elements that I put into play. What, elements going forward are going to fit like the story arc and are going to make sense, but all, and also carry, carry the book forward and be consistent within the world building that we've created. So usually by the time I get to the third book, um, a lot of the writing, a lot of the heavy lifting of the writing has already been done because the world building is, has got to remain consistent. Right. So, it yeah. actually kind of works like that, um, which is not exactly like a story arc, but it's kind of similar to it. It's, mm-hmm. you know, you create the elements of a world and the and in, in order to be consistent, you've got to follow the elements of the world, uh, which actually makes the characterization even more important. Um, mm-hmm. My editors have been really, really good. They've caught a couple of instances where my characters have not reacted in character. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the quickest ways to lose a reader is to kind of start introducing that kind of author intrusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had some mm-hmm. in, in the shattered vigil, which is the sequel to the shock of night. I had something that I really wanted to have happen. And so I wanted it so bad that I forced it in there. And then my editors came back and said, Oh, we're not really comfortable with that. <laughs> that's a little <laughs> over the top. <laughs> you think you could take that out, please? <laughs> and uh, and we've had that conversation a few times. I remember when I wrote the Heroes lot. I had uh, Errol down in Morocco, and there's this there's this antagonist who ends up getting killed at one of Errol's antagonists because he's rude to the Karif, uh, and his head. He actually gets his head cut off. And then the original way I wrote the scene was Errol was drugged at the time and the head rolled toward to Errol's feet. And so Errol kicked it across the room like a football. Which I thought was hysterical. But my yeah. But my editors not so much. And they said, you know, we're not we're we're okay with the beheading and the dying thing, but you know, kicking the head across the room, we're just gonna have to draw the line there. We're gonna we're gonna want you to drop that. <laughs> and I said, okay. 
though something similar kind of happened here. It wasn't, it, it wasn't, mm. it wasn't quite that comical, but, mm. uh, but it was, it, and they were right. So that's, that's kind of the, what was the question again? <laughs> I, I think we've kind of covered it. <laughs> oh. That should be in here, like outtakes for your, your uh, newsletter readers or something. I, I, there can, you go. I could probably do those. I hope I, I, I'm running the risk of offending a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> so getting back on topic, how long does it take you to knock out a draft? Uh, depends on how long the book is. Um, generally speaking about eight months, the shattered vigil took a little bit longer because I remember last year about this time, I was about 40,000 words into the first draft. And everything came screeching to a halt because I realized the pacing was wrong. The tone was wrong. The scenes were not really advancing the plot. And I went into a state of depression for about a week where all I did was wander around the house and feel sorry for myself because hmm. and I was in a, and I was in a state of panic because now I knew I was not going to make my deadline because I had to get this thing turned in by December 1st. Um, and so I called up my sister, who is one of my beta readers. And I said, Ramona, I don't know what to do. I said, I've got to go back and I've got to write this entire thing from scratch, starting at the very beginning. And she said, is there anything that you can use out of what you've already got? I said, bits and pieces here or there. I said, but mostly no, mostly it just all has to be redone. And then she said, well, then there's nothing for it except to just start. And I was like, no, okay. Yeah, but I really, I really didn't want to let go of those forty thousand words because it, it it represented a huge investment. But I threw them out, and so I started cranking on a new version of the Shattered Vigil, and it was, it was definitely the right call. But ooh, uh, about eight months if if things don't fall apart on me longer if they do. <laughs> All right. All right, and what writing software do you prefer? You know, this is going to sound kind of bad. Word. <laughs> it's actually not writing software. Um, Word is basically just processing software. What I use to help me with that is I use OneNote where I go to put in pictures, ideas, character sketches, scenes, and everything like that. Um, mm -hmm. I'm toying with the idea someday of crossing over to the dark side or the light side, depending on your viewpoint. And getting a Mac with Scrivener, mm -hmm. uh, I just mm -hmm. don't want to pull the trigger because Macs are so expensive and I'm so tight. You know, there's a Windows version of Scrivener too. Yeah, from what I've heard though, it doesn't have all the features yep. the Mac version does. Yeah, there is Most that. So I want the features. Well, what, 90% of the features, I'd say? So yeah, Probably about 90%. So there's a few things that you'll go in, try to find on a tutorial, and, oh, that's just the Mac version. Great. So, well, I, you know, it, when I get to a, when I get to a, a later point, I'm, I will probably get something like Scrivener. Um, what works best for me though, is being so familiar with my, my own work and my own characters is that I carry them around with me in my head all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Really crowded up there. <laughs> yeah. It gets that way, doesn't it? Yeah. And the problem is like, I can't, I can't dump the non-essential stuff. Um, 
you know, I have I have a great memory for for really useless trivia. <laughs> hmm. Well, that's okay. I found it's easier to dump the useful stuff and keep the non-essential trivia. Yeah, I still remember a fourth grade poem about hippopotamuses. <laughs> Seriously, I do. So, somewhere, uh, somewhere kicking around is my kindergarten recipe for macaroni and cheese that requires two gallons of milk. There's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of mac wow. and cheese. I bet parties at your house. Hear that? A really soupy mac and cheese. Yes. Um. So when you're trying to edit out the unessential or non-essential stuff, um, where do you go? Um, do you even do editing yourself? Oh gosh, um, I do some ferocious editing. Um, when people, on occasion, ask me about the writing process, one of the things that I tell them is: is you have got to be to be successful at this, you've got to learn how to be an absolutely merciless critic to whatever flaws you have in your writing. Um, and sometimes it'll take a while to figure out what those are. Um, I actually had an epiphany about a week ago about a, an area of my writing that I really needed to strengthen. And so that's one of the things that I'll be working on coming up. But I, I do, I definitely do some serious editing. Um, when I get to the galley stage, I'm actually laboring over pretty much every word in the manuscript. I'm getting better at it. Uh, editing's not my editing's not my strong suit. I am getting better at it. Uh, one of the things I do love about editing is it is not it's analytical, um, so it does not involve as much of the creative brain as writing the first draft does. Uh, when I'm writing the first draft, I cannot be interrupted. I, mm -hmm. The door the, the door is closed. The lights are off. I'm in. I have to be in my own world, and it's got to be absolutely uninterrupted time. When I'm editing, you know, you can come in, you can talk to me because yep, yep. I can stop and I can pick up right where I left off mm. uh, because it's because it's analytical. It's a lot. It's a lot more forgiving and with starts and stops. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing I do love about editing. Mm -hmm. All right. So how do you deal with writer's block or do you even get it? No, I actually get writer's block on a, on a fair number of occasions. Um the first thing I try to do is calm down. Most of the time when I get writer's block, it's because I don't have, I don't have the next step in my outline or I'm, I'm afraid of a deadline or I've had a couple of days where I know that I'm not going to be able to use what I've written, 700 words or not. Um, and so I most, most, mostly what I do is I just try to calm down. Uh, if it's really serious, and I'm just staring at the keyboard and nothing's happening. I will take a legal pad and a pen and I will start to hand write longhand. I'll start writing that way mm -hmm. um, hmm. because there is, you know, it, it's slower, but there's a much deeper connection to what's happening. Mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. usually enough to kind of get the creative side of my brain going again. Mm -hmm. And that's, and I don't have to do it often, but, but when, when it gets really bad, yeah, there's nothing like just taking a pen and writing longhand. Cursive is yeah. cool. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it right. definitely is. So. 
Yeah, I, I get hand cramps that way, but <laughs> yeah, and, and I can't read my own writing, so there's yeah, yeah, I'm left-handed. I have that same problem. It's like what? go lefties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, next question is: What snacks or beverages are must-haves for you when you're writing? Coffee and chocolate. Okay, if I'm writing, if if I'm writing a first draft, coffee and chocolate. And I take, you know, I'll take a little bit of creamer in the, in the coffee. Um, sometime maybe a, a little bit of sugar. I like, I love the, I love the French vanilla creamer mm-hmm. in the coffee. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's holiday time, I love writing during the Christmas season because I go to Scar- Starbucks and I get one of those, like really like candy bar in a cup drinks. Um, <laughs> the peppermint, the peppermint mocha. <laughs> And, and, and I drink that, and I can feel myself getting fat. <laughs> and then what's even better about, like, the Christmas time is, like, ever since I was 18, which makes that 36 years now, um, I've made fudge at Christmas. Mm-hmm. And I've had 36 years to get the recipe right, and it's, like, really awesome fudge. When I have a couple of pieces of that fudge, and a big cup of coffee. Seriously, I can almost write a thousand words in an hour. <laughs> like like several hours. It's so awesome. Yeah, but it's That's so great. It's so incredibly bad for me, but it's great. Yeah. And then I and then I just I, I waddle you know, into the next room, and it's, it's awesome. There you go. What you need to do now is sell that fudge on the on your website to other writers. <laughs> Definitely. I, you know, I have. I am I I am not a great cook. I but I will tell you this: every almost everybody who's ever had the fudge looks at me and goes, "You should sell this." It's <laughs> really really good. And the secret is in how you cook it, not the recipe. Hmm. Huh? So what's the right way to cook it? Uh, it's kind of a cre- It's it's more of a it's more of a look. But there is what what happens is is like if you follow the recipe and you cook it for how long it says. Most of the time, it's going to turn out grainy because the sugar has not completely melted and become right. smooth. Mm-hmm. So there is a look that it gets when when the butter and the sugar and the evaporated milk gets to the right consistency. There's a kind of a look, and I and and you have to you have to look for that. It's just mm-hmm. you got to do it on kind of like medium low heat, and it's just short of caramelization. But it gets a kind of a yellowish, really syrupy look. If it's still kind of like white and real frothy and bubbly, it's going to be grainy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so so that's how you do it, and it, it turns out great. And I'll put on about I put I I I make about fifty pounds of it every year to give away. Wow. Yum. Now I want. Now I'm fudge. wishing I. Yeah, I'm wishing I at least had chocolate nearby. All right. Okay, it's gonna take me a minute to to get to where I I can stop drooling. Uh-oh. Lost you for a little bit. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I'll... Now there's two of you. Great. That's weird. I can get, I, I can get fifteen hundred words knocked out a day. <laughs> <laughs> I end up packing away a lot. I end up packing away a lot of fudge during the Christmas season. 
Yeah, and it's worth it. Although I'm still trying to lose my Christmas weight, and here it is June. <laughs> and Nashville is hilly. Do you know how hard it is to push pedal a bike up the hills around Nashville when you're really just not as light as you want to be? It's really <laughs> nice. Hills are not fun. Mm. I uh, tried going out biking a month or so ago. And I stopped by, because we live really close to my in-laws, like three blocks. So I stopped by, it was Saturday afternoon, and I'm like, so I asked my father-in-law if he could check out the tires and whatever, because it's been a few months. He's like, okay, yeah, you shouldn't have been riding. Um, that made things difficult, because it was the tires were at like 19 PSI, and they were supposed <laughs> to be at like... Ooh. Uh, 36 hey. or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Yeah. 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 Low for a big thing. Prop, proper tire inflation is essential. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, okay, no wonder it felt like I was dragging the bike. <laughs> I would do it. I would definitely right. much work. <laughs> yes. That being said, um, what's the weirdest thing you've ever Googled ever? Um, probably what most people would think the weirdest thing I've ever Googled would be, uh, I did a lot of research before I wrote the shock of night on exactly what happens to the human body after someone dies. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to, I needed a time, a, I needed a timed breakdown of exactly when rigor mortis sets in, when rigor mortis eases off, um, when the skin starts to purple and things like that, you know, when the body starts to bloat, a whole lot of a whole lot of really unsavory stuff. Because mm. I had a I had a basically a, a, a character who was a detective, and he was going out and he was running across people who had been killed, and so you know, him knowing those types of things was kind of essential to the plot line of the story. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not not a lot of fun, but. Uh, interesting. I, I thought that once I, I mistakenly thought that once rigor mortis set in, it stayed, but it doesn't. It's nope. a, it actually really? there, there's a set time frame for rigor mortis. And it depends on how warm or cold the body is. It does. Fortunately, um, the kingdom of Column is is north of most of the other kingdoms, and it's kind of cool up there. So <laughs> yeah. those unsavory processes. <laughs> That happen upon expiration are mm -hmm. delayed. Yep. I'm not hungry anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no I, used, I used to watch Bones while I was eating dinner. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would do the it. The secret to enjoying Bones is tuning in five minutes late. <laughs> oh dear. So what do your marketing practices look like, Patrick? <laughs> Practically non-existent. Um, this podcast is probably going to be the highlight of my entire summer. Uh, and I really, and I, trust me, I really appreciate y'all asking me on because I actually don't do a lot of marketing. I took a piece of advice from my agent, Steve Lobby, when we, because we had this conversation pretty early on. And I said, Steve, I said, I'm kind of marketing stupid. Um, and he goes, yeah, most writers are. <laughs> and so, 
And so I said, well, what do I do? He said, you know, the best piece of marketing that you can do, honestly, is write the very best book that you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has actually, that has actually worked out. Now, I mean, I don't know if, if I had gotten out there and marketed really heavily, if, you know, I would have sold substantially more books than I already have, but the staff and the sword has been, has done well and is actually still doing well. Um, so it seems to be, you know, Steve's advice seems to be kind of spot on. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and to be honest with you, it's, I see a lot of people on Facebook and I, and sometimes I really suspect myself of turning into one and all they ever talk about is their books. And if I yeah. could, if I could just get rid of my author Facebook page without incurring the wrath of my publisher, I would do it in a heartbeat because I hate, <laughs> I hate coming off like I'm some type of literary Amway guy. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just, that's, I, 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 my mar- my marketing is really I'm just trying to write the best book that I can, um, and if I fail, then I just kind of suck as a writer. That's just how it is. Literary Amway guy, there's an idea for a short story. <laughs> uh, no, all you gotta do is you go onto Facebook, and there's all the research you could ever want. <laughs> <laughs> True. All right. Which fandom or fandoms do you feel have influenced your writing the most? Okay, I really don't understand that question. What do you mean exactly? All right, so, like, Doctor Who is a fandom where there's all these people that congregate around um, the the saga or the drama or whatever, and they'll discuss uh, plot elements and fan theories and... uh, did you uh, did you see this little Easter egg in this obscure episode of a Tom Baker or whatever? You know, that's a fandom. Uh, I would probably have to say uh, the two fandoms. One is Star Trek mm-hmm. because I'm a child of the '60s. Yeah, and uh, the other one would actually have to be the fandom that grew up around um, the Robert Jordan series, The Wheel of Time. Okay. If you were born after 1995, it's hard to imagine just how insanely popular that series was in its heyday. Um, mm-hmm. It was it was absolutely unbelievable. Um, it's also a good example of too much of a good thing, um, and one of the one of the downfalls of actually being married to your own editor. Um, because you know, I've got the I've got the entire series on my bookshelf. Mm-hmm. One of the things that would have made that probably the best fantasy series of all time would have been a little judicious editing. It, uh, it they really let they really let it that goes series on and on. Yeah. And drag. I've read and the first were... couple of books in that series, and it does tend to wander a little. Yeah, well, that's nothing compared to getting to, like, book nine. I mean, I think it was book nine. It had a 90-something page prologue. Oh, Yeah, that was kind of my reaction, too. And I was like, really? 90 pages of prologue. 90 pages written in omniscient viewpoint. 
because that's how all of his <sighs> prologues were done. All of his prologues were written in um, basically in an omniscient viewpoint. I'm just like, oh. Oh, Lord, help us. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I, I, I started book seven and then it's like, yeah, no. Uh, so I just read, because it's a really good story, I just read what I needed to of the rest of the story on Wikipedia. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I read the yeah, whole series. So, yeah, it's... I uh, made it through, I think, book three. Yeah. Hmm. But yeah, those would be the two fandoms. Because I've actually read the entire series and... and Every time a new book would come out, I would go back to the very beginning of the series and start all over again and then read the new book. And after a while, I gave up on that because, goodness. I mean, it's, it's like 14, a bajillion books in the series. It's 14 books long, and they're all doorstops. I mean, <laughs> you know. yeah. I think the shortest one is like 600 pages. Yeah. So if you had to choose one single book, out of all of those that you've ever read, to be your favorite, what would it be? Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it would be Lord of That's the Rings. That's a legit answer. Mm-hmm. Or the Belgaria. Oh, yeah. Because the Belgaria is really good too. It's kind of more than one book. Yeah, but it's one story. Been a year or two since I've read the book. Yeah. So, yeah, those would be my two. All right. Good stuff. Magician by Raymond D. Feist, though, was also a very, very good read. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So, what's something that surprised you most about being an author? Um, there have been actually a lot of surprising moments. One of the things is how much leeway I'm actually given by my editors. Um, I thought my editors would actually be doing more editing, and really what my editors are doing is more suggesting and then I'm doing the editing. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. One of the things that also surprised me is how weird being recognized as a writer would be. Um, I remember the first time I actually had somebody I didn't know come up to me and ask me to autograph their book. It was it was it was a girl who was my my son Daniel was playing in a he played cello in high school and so he was in this group here in Nashville called uh, Music City Youth Orchestra and one of the girls who also played um, cello in that Music City Youth Orchestra came up to me after their after their practice when I went to pick up Daniel and asked me if I was Daniel's dad. And I said, yeah. And she said, could you sign my book? And she pulled out a copy of A Cast of Stones. And I just lost it. Um, (laughs) And then I went up to, I went up to, I remember I went up to ACFW in 2014. um, And I think that was in Indianapolis. And, And actually, and that was the year that I won the Carol Award for A Cast of Stones. And that was probably the most bizarre weird happenstance that I've ever been a part of because here I'd spent countless hours years in basically in solitary uh, mm-hmm. and then to get a lot of recognition for that in public and it was just the discontinuity, my brain couldn't get wrapped around that discontinuity. 
Um, so I think one of the, the thing that surprised me most about being an author is is that I thought I would enjoy the public recognition, but when it happened, it actually just turned out to be weird. Weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that may go that may go back to the fact that I'm really just kind of a nerd nerd writer reader kind of guy who doesn't do well in social situations. Anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll probably yeah, be testing and buy for signatures too. So, <laughs> yeah, somebody asked me. She said, "Can I can I take my picture with you?" And I was like, "Okay." I looked at her. I said, "You do know you just asked to have your picture taken with a geometry teacher, right? You know that." <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, never mind. <laughs> no, she wanted the picture anyway. There's no accounting for taste. <laughs> Let's see. What's one piece of writing advice that you would want to share with us, authors? Um, write the story that you would love to read. And don't give up on the story until you are absolutely in love with every part of it. One of the things that that I early on there was a progression that I experienced as a writer, and it was this: um, I could write a great sentence, you know, and I'd be like, "Wow, that's a really great line." And then it got to the point where I could write a really great paragraph, mm. and then I kind of progressed, and then it it got to a page, and then where I'm at now is every now and then. I'll write this incredible chapter. The whole chapter's just nailed. I haven't gotten to a point where I I think that way about the entire book, but it's getting but it's getting closer. And if I can ever write like an entire book where I go, wow, I've nailed this entire book, then I'm probably just going to quit. <laughs> the chances of doing that twice are probably nil. Uh, but yeah, write the book that you would love to read and don't quit working the book until you do love it. Mm -hmm. hmm. That's great advice. Of course, by draft yes. 20 or so, you'll probably hate it again, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't, don't ever, get, and don't give up. And the, the periods when you hate your writing, those go away. That happens to everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. More profound, profound advice. Um, well, you live this long, you ought to be able to come up with something. <laughs> okay, is that a Bolt quote? No, but it could be. <laughs> uh, what would you like to accomplish next um, in your writing career? You know, at one point in time, I thought I wanted to hit the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, it's really difficult for a CBA book to do that because they don't measure sales the way they don't. Most the New York Times doesn't actually measure sales of CBA books through the traditional CBA channels, so that's really hard to do. Um, I met a guy who came to talk to our writers group years ago named Eric Wilson, who had written the uh, adaptation of the movie Fireproof. And he hit the New York Times bestseller list with that adaptation. And then six months later, he was without a contract and was seriously thinking about going back to Kinko's to work as their manager. 
And I thought, wow, okay. Mm -hmm. I thought hitting the New York Times bestseller list, seller list was basically your ticket, not just for that book, but for forever. And so, to be honest with you, I don't really know what my goals are as far as being a writer past just trying to write the next good book. I've got a series of books planned. I don't know if they'll actually come out mm -hmm. because I don't know if the Dark Water Saga will be successful enough to justify that. And, you know, and to be perfectly honest, um, writing is hard. Uh, it is, you know, the days when you hit the zone and it's just flowing out of you and it's almost perfect on the first draft. Those are great days and I live for those, but, mm -hmm. you know, uh, but a lot of times I think when people talk about writing is that's the stuff that they talk about. Well, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a good piece of it, but that's certainly not all of it. Writing is hard. Writing a good book is really, really hard. It is work. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I would like to continue to write, you know, on in, on into my old age and decrepitude. Uh, <laughs> but, but, mo but I, I don't want to, I don't want to do what some of my favorite writers did where they just write the same story over and over again. As much as I love David Eddings in the Bulgaria, mm -hmm. David Eddings mm -hmm. only had one story in him and he wrote that story over and over again. And, there were a lot of books of his towards the end there that I, I didn't bother to read. I already knew what he was going to say. So that's just kind of uh, something I, I've taken to heart. I, I, I want the stories to be fresh. Um, there was a guy who was a genius at the beginning of the early science fiction age. His name was L. Sprague de Camp. He was one of the founding fathers of sci-fi. And he said, you know, it's a shame that as I've gotten older, my craft of writing has gotten better, but my creativity has diminished. Mm. That's mm. one of the things I hope to avoid. Mm -hmm. But we'll see. All right. So, Patrick, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and your work? Well, this podcast is probably the best resource that they're able to find. But if they would like additional, how do you like that? A brazen piece of sucking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if they would like to, if they would like to uh, have a conversation, they can. Of course, they can find me on Amazon because all my books are up there, along with you know Barnes and Noble and CBA and everywhere and family bookstores and everywhere else. Uh, but if they want to, if they want to find out more, they can go to my website, which is just my name, PatrickWCar.com, uh, or they can find me on Facebook. Um, if you do a Facebook search on Patrick W author, Patrick W Carr, oh, I hate that word. Um, I'll, I'll pop up mm -hmm. and, and then, you know, I, they can email me or they can ask me questions through Facebook or whatever. I'm, I, I don't do a lot of marketing, but I try to stay accessible and I try mm -hmm. to always yeah. give messages and posts and things like that. Just cause you know, if, if I did that, I would want somebody to answer me. Right. Yeah. Well, I try to stay so they can find it. Yeah, that sounds great. So, well, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. We had fun talking to you. Well, it it was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
This has been another episode of Lasers, Dragons, and Keyboards. Have a question or comment? Email us at lasersdragonskeyboards at gmail.com. Our music is Flight of the Beast, Loop 1, by Jonathan Gear. Lasers, Dragons, and Keyboards is copyrighted under a Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. This means if you're not-for-profit and you want to quote us, please be sure that you cite us. If you are for profit, please get our permission first. You can find us at lasersdragonsandkeyboards.wordpress.com for detailed show notes, as well as on facebook.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next time. So long, and thanks for all the fish. <laughs>